This is dedicated, a show where people share about what they are dedicated to. It could be a career or a hobby. They will tell you why they are so into it, or how they become so good at it. I'm your host Lulu, and making these conversations happen is what I am dedicated to. You can also tell me what you are dedicated to. People usually have a good memory of what they were doing during a major historical event. So does David. He clearly remembers where he was in the winter of 1963. Americans and the world were stunned by the assassination of President John F. Kennedy, and David joined the United States Air Force one month later. Starting from 1950, as the Cold War escalated, the United States Air Force started to maintain air bases in France to counter the presence of Soviet Union in East Europe. David was part of that operation. He served there for three years until French President Charles de Gaulle decided to evict non-French forces from the country. Back then, when David was not up in the air, he was a rock star on the base. He was involved in all kinds of drum battle, and even winning the first place in the base talent contest. This is how a baby boomer came of age, and also a little bit about the politics and music of the '60s. A little bit about myself. Oh, well, number one, I'm a baby boomer, so that means I have a lot of time under my belt. Starting way back when,、uh, when I was in the number of careers that I've had,、uh, the military, being a musician,、uh, traveling around, playing in, in bands for many, many years, as well as.、Uh, I was also a police officer up here in、uh, New York、uh, for 25 years. I'm retired from doing that, and I've pretty much traveled all over、uh, Europe and、uh, United States and、uh, China. Yeah, so I guess we'll just start with your time in the army. You can't confuse those. I was in the Air Force. The Army is a whole different ball game. I was in the Air Force. I was in the Air Force for four years. Well, six years actually. There's the main four separate militaries are the Marine Corps,、uh, the United States Air Force, the United States Army, United States Marine Corps. Then you have the U.S. Coast Guard. So they're they're all separate branches, but they're all part of the United States military. So how old were you back then? Back then, back then.、Uh, Well, this was in 1963. So in 1963, I was 17. At that particular point, my older brother had already gone into the United States Air Force. Well, basically, I went in the military right after uh, uh, President Kennedy was assassinated. That was 1963, November. He was,、uh, and、uh, by the time. 
everything was all said and done. I was in the basic training at Lackland Air Force Base in Texas in uh, December 16th, 1963. Yeah. So I know there are different career fields in Air Force. So which field were you in? Well, before you even get to a career field, you got to go through basic training. <laughs> That's a whole different program. So you have to remember uh, back in 1963 after... Uh, uh, President Kennedy was uh, assassinated. I was went to basic training, but that was also the first time that I had ever been on an airplane. And uh, I got sworn in uh, in Buffalo, New York. And I'm from Rochester, New York. So I had to travel to Buffalo, New York, where I was uh, sworn into the United States Air Force. And you take the oath to uh, do everything that you're going to do being in the military. And then they transported me to the airport, and I got on a four-engine turboprop, not a jet. You know what the propellers on it? <laughs> Four of them, and we flew from Buffalo to uh, Chicago, and then uh, stayed on the plane, picked up some more people that are all going to Texas. And then flew from uh, Chicago to San Antonio, Texas. And then uh, everyone was just so nice. So it was just wonderful. And the Air Force bus came to the San Antonio uh, airport and picked everybody up that was going to the United States Air Force Base at Lackland Air Force Base, Texas, in San Antonio. Now, Lackland Air Force Base back then is still today the only place if you join the United States Air Force, that's where you go. So I... Uh, Got on the bus with the rest of the uh, people that were approximately my age. And uh, like I said, everyone was just wondering. We drove through the main gate. and By this time, it's like uh, 2.30 in the morning. And then uh, 2.30 in the morning, we pull into the base. And uh, we're all sitting on the Air Force bus. And we look up. And here comes these two drill instructors, all spit and polished uniforms, and they get up on the bus, <laughs> and that's when everyone stopped being so nice. <laughs> they got on the bus and started yelling at everybody, and they had all these footprints in this big parking lot, painted, so, you know, painted yellow, and they were screaming at everybody, get off the bus, get off the bus, you know, was, hurry up, hurry up, hurry up, and everybody jumped off the bus and went and find a pair of footprints and stand on there. And then that's where it began. And you walked in, you walked in one end of this warehouse called the Green Monster, because it was all painted green. And he took everything off, all your clothes, and they issued you everything from your socks to your underwear, to your laundry bag, to your uniform, to your hat, to your boots, to your shoes, you name it. They gave you everything and put your other stuff in a bag and you came out the other end and you looked around and went, what just happened? And from that point, they took you to another place and uh, went to a, a dining hall where everyone was fed. And then they run everybody over to a barracks that had 60 bunk beds in it. All in a line. The floor was so clean, you could eat off the floor. They said, find a bunk, get in it, put the, your sheets on it that you were given, put the blanket on it, and go to sleep. 
this was like uh, by this time probably 2.45 in the morning. Five o'clock, the doors went open, the lights went on, and they started yelling and screaming, get out. And it went on like that, with marching, going to the, the chow hall, going to exercise, doing everything that they do in basic training, and uh, learning the whole different rules. But what they were doing, they were, they were basically, I mean, I look bad at, at it now, what they were doing is they were taking people who came from every walk of life, uh, every color, every nationality that was that had joined it, and uh, people I never saw before. Everybody just uh, did what they were told and uh, started to learn what it is to work as a team. Forget your individuality. That's all done. So that went on for uh, nonstop for about, I think it was 12 weeks. 12, 13 weeks. And uh, from when we all showed up there and walked in, of course, the next morning when we get up, the first thing they do is they took you down to the barbershop and shaved your heads bald. Everybody that had hair, you can say goodbye to that. Everybody's haircut took about under a minute. Next, they just yell, jump up the chair, zzz, gone, get out. And they're talking about shining shoes and pressing your uniforms and and uh, everything they did. And where you where you lived in the barracks, it had to be spotless 24 hours a day. And they would come in and they would inspect it and they'd put white gloves on. And they'd reach up in a little, and they'd find one little piece of dust and they'd say, do it all over again. And it went on and on and on. And nobody, somebody would say, well, what am I supposed to do with this? Eventually, everyone learned what they were supposed to do, when they were supposed to do it, and you learned how to work as a team. So by the time basic training was over, we could all walk, all march in this straight line, turn at the same time, turn around, come back at the same time. Everybody's bunk. You could bounce a quarter off it. That was the thing. The blankets had to be pulled so tight, you flip a quarter up in the air, it had to bounce three times. If it didn't bounce three times, guess what? The bed wasn't tight enough. Everything had to be shined. Your foot locker, I mean, it just went, it went on and on and on until when we finally got to the end, graduated from basic training. Wow. <laughs> Whoever you were before was all gone. You are now part of the Air Force. And you were part of uh, the team. Now it was time to go learn what you're going to learn or whatever tech school they were going to send you to. So the next step after that was they decided, uh, after all the tests that you had taken, the aptitudes and et cetera, et cetera, some people were uh, at that, back at that time. They would send them to like uh, like my older brother, his his aptitudes and his scores in electronics and everything, and he got sent to uh, uh, missile school, IB, ICBM missiles, and he he got sent to another Air Force base in uh, I think that was in well part of Texas, and then he got sent someplace else. But that's a whole different thing. And uh, the bottom line was uh, they uh, gave me uh, the questions and, and uh, what I would like to do in the Air Force. And uh, one of the things that I've always known ever since I was a little kid, for some reason, I've been very lucky in my life because I always knew what I wanted to do. I, I always knew that I wanted to be a musician for some reason. Who knows why, but... Wanted to be a musician and play an instrument, 
and always knew that I wanted to be in the police force. So I made that known, and uh, they said, well, guess what? We're sending you to Air Police Tech School, which is the United States Air Force Police. Now, the question, or it wasn't a question, the thing was that uh, I didn't get sent to another base for training. I'm still at Lackland Air Force Base, which has, you know, thousands and thousands of people. And on the other side of the base, instead of getting sent someplace else, is where the uh, United States Air Force Base uh, Police Training Academy is on Lackland Air Force Base. Now it's ca- it was called Air Police back then. Now it's called Security Police, and uh, they combine both security and regular law enforcement. So I was sent uh, across the base now that I graduated from basic training, and uh, I had to wait uh, three weeks to get into the school. That was, I thought, well, oh, wow, three weeks. Get to relax for three weeks. Not even part of that equation. They sent me to the uh, PAT barracks, PATS barracks, which means personnel awaiting tech school. Everybody that's awaiting to go to the technical schools that's going to be on Lackland Air Force Base, you had to go into this one particular barracks, or actually there were three of them, but they were all the PATS barracks where you stayed and that's where you lived. Then you didn't think you were just going to sit around. Of course not. They said, guess what? You're going to Dining Hall 32. Dining Hall 32 means you go there at 5 o'clock in the morning and you get back about 8 o'clock at night because they're serving breakfast, lunch, and dinner to thousands of people just in that dining hall. So uh, I spent uh, the next three weeks uh, doing everything from jumping in huge, gigantic pots and washing them, pans, dishes, sending them through, you name it, mop the floors up, everything you do in a big major kitchen. And uh, finally that nightmare was over, and I went to tech school. And then Air Police Tech School, that was another uh, 12 weeks at that time, where you learn everything, basic military law, uh, you become proficient uh, with, uh, at that time, it was the M16 rifle and uh, 38 caliber pistol and a bunch of, uh, all the things that have to do with security and law enforcement. And then uh, graduated from there. And then they said, you're supposed to fill out a dream sheet. What they call a dream sheet of where would you like to get stationed? <laughs> Which is, now that you look back, it doesn't matter what you put down. They're going to send you where they want to send you. So back in uh, 60, well, now now it, I've already been there December 63, so now it's uh, 1964. And uh, they, Vietnam was not a big deal. Uh, the United States military was only sending uh, advisors to Vietnam and Indochina back then. Oh, Ho Chi Minh was not even in power. You know, the bottom line is that's the, that whole political end of it, that had nothing to do with it. Most people never even heard of Vietnam or what was going on back in those early days. So consequently, I mean, you're only talking, you know, 14, 15 years after World War II, which was over in 1945. So uh, there, I'm sitting there, and I said, well, and, and they said, uh, well, you're going, we're sending you overseas. And I'm going, okay, where am I going? They said, we're sending you to France. And I'm going, really? <laughs> Good. <laughs> I said, wonderful. And uh, so I, I got to, they gave uh, military uh, airfare, et cetera, et cetera, and I got to uh, come back home 
see my family uh, for 10 days. And then uh, I went down to, flew down to Newark Airport in New Jersey and uh, got on a military air transport. Once again, it's not like jets today. Back then it was four-engine uh, turboprop and flew from uh, Newark, New Jersey to Newfoundland with a layover and fuel up there and then uh, straight over to Rhine Main Air Base, Germany. And then from Germany, get on the train and uh, head up into France to where I was stationed about uh, 200 miles outside of Paris. Yeah, that was that was a whirlwind tour. But if I could just back up a second, before I even got to the joining the military or anything like that, it was when President Kennedy got killed. Everybody seems to know where they were, and I remember exactly where I was. I was doing a very professional job at Nick and Bob's restaurant. I was the dishwasher. <laughs> it was a little, it was a little small restaurant with like ten stools and three tables, and they had this little black and white TV sitting on top of the refrigerator. And I heard all these people going, "Oh my god, oh my god!" And I came out of the kitchen and uh, looked, and there was, you know, he was assass- shot and assassinated, and. Uh, you know, the rest is part of that history. So, eventually I back swing back and uh, come home on leave, and now I'm landed in France, and uh, so I'm the new guy in the black. Or I come on to the base, which uh, an Air Force base is like a small city. Any, any, anywhere you go on a military installation. And this was a 75th 44th Air Police Squadron combat group which means they had uh, jet airplanes that flew all over the world. They had uh, close to SAC bases, which uh, fly around 24 hours a day around the whole world. Uh, This particular base uh, was a combat support group, and so I started there. And because I was a new guy when I I came there, so now I'm 18, but I looked like, I looked very young for my age at that particular point. So I was a new guy, so I, I was now 18, but I looked like I was 15. Yeah, so I read from the internet. So it says, at that time, the Air Force sent many people and aircrafts to France um, to counter the buildup of Soviet armed forces in Eastern Europe. That's right, because just before Kennedy was killed, you got to remember you had the Cuban Missile Crisis. And that's where... uh, the USSR at that time, dealing with Fidel Castro, and uh, they're uh, they're all great friends, and so they were sneaking uh, intercontinental ballistic missiles onto into Cuba and putting up missile launch pads, which is only ninety miles off the coast of Florida. So that wasn't going to happen, and there was a big whole deal about that, and uh, uh, American ships blockaded Cuba, wouldn't let anything in, wouldn't let anything out. Negotiations be, went on between uh, the United States and uh, the USSR, and eventually uh, they got caught with the spy planes, had all the evidence. So uh, NATO, which is uh, all the countries that belong to NATO, wasn't going to let the USSR get away with that. And so they pulled all the missiles out of Cuba. And so that was another big uh, crisis that was going on. Yes, uh, the, the base I was at out of France... They were sending, at that point, we had what was called a, a twin engine, uh, jet engine, RB-66, which is a two-pilot uh, uh, aircraft that uh, took uh, all these huge satellite pictures before satellites were flying all over the planet. And uh, 
and uh, in outer space. And uh, so that was part of that. And then they changed over to the uh, Phantom F-4C, which is the another twin-engine fighter plane that was used all during Vietnam and a very famous uh, aircraft. But this installation uh, that I was stationed at, you had alert aircraft, which meant uh, 24 hours a day at a moment's notice, the uh, pilots were on alert standby, come running out of uh, underground headquarters where they were and uh, jump on the jet, and they were out of there in two or three minutes airborne and heading to their target, whatever it was. So consequently, because I was the new guy, you just, I figured, oh, well, I'm going to be in the, work on the main gate and, and wear the uniform of the air police and uh, drive around just like in a regular police car. Oh, wrong. No, you got to start out in security, which means they give you the nice big warm parka and, and the big warm leggings, and then they take you out and they to the flight line way out in the middle next to the runway and on the taxiway. And here sits this big jet sitting there and it's all hooked up and ready to go and nobody's around. And there's where you stand for uh, eight and a half hours. And uh, anybody gets near it, uh, you had your options, what you were supposed to do, your your orders. No one got near the aircraft except the pilots. For, and they had to have, uh, there was lines painted on on the concrete taxiway. There was a, there was a green line, a... Uh, Yellow line and a red line. You do not cross the red line. To cross the red line is going to be big trouble. Then you had perimeter fences all around with canine people or out in the darkness because like, you're working midnights. They're walking on the perimeter with their dogs uh, way out there. And, and then you have gate access and, you know, it's military installation. It's not like you just come and hop over the fence or run through the main gate and go, hey, I want to go look at this or go do that. Didn't happen that way. So for the first uh, year and a half, I was working midnights, and uh, they did the rotations from uh, three days on, or I'm sorry, nine days on, three days off, which means you did three midnight shifts, three afternoon shifts, three day shifts, and then you had three days off. Hmm. So how did you spend your leave? How did I spend my three days off? First of all, because I was new, I couldn't leave the base for six months. For the six months, I had to take these uh, courses from the University of Maryland in order to upgrade my uh, status, and I uh, had to pass all those, and then finally I uh, did that, and there's a specific code that you get, and, uh, and uh, that graduated me into a different thing, and uh, also that also gave me, I was enlisted, so I got my second stripe right away, uh, and uh, consequently, uh when I would leave, well, you'd have your days off. Then you'd jump on a, go down off base, take a, get a taxi and uh, go down into, at that point, uh, the closest big city right near our Air Force Base was Nancy, Nancy, N-A-N-C-Y. And uh, you'd go down there and uh, it was a fairly good sized city. Or you'd get on the train and uh, go to Paris. And you know, you go at first, you do all the regular stuff. Oh, let's go see the Eiffel Tower. Let's go, uh, you know, look at that. Oh, there's the Notre Dame on, on and on and on and all the regular tourist stuff you did way back then. But, you know, way back then, you know, it's completely different the way it is today. Completely. Because I've been back to France uh, three times. Two, I'm sorry, two times since I was stationed there. 
So consequently, uh, down when you'd go down uh, there, they had all these bars, and uh, that's where all the military guys are. Army guys would be in one place, Air Force would be in another place, Marine guys would be, ships would be coming into port, they'd be going to another place, and there's all sorts of uh, <laughs> interesting things going on. <laughs> it was a great time. They made movies about it. So consequently, uh, that was it, but uh, eventually got to, to a point where I would go on leave, where I'd have uh, 10 to 15 days leave accrued, and uh, I would just go all over Europe, just get on a train. I mean, within a matter of two hours, uh, you go. You can go in any direction. You from uh, from Paris or into France. I'd be in Germany and uh, total different culture, language, uh, money, everything. But you always had to travel in uniform, by the way, too. You couldn't you couldn't travel in private clothes. Oh, I see. Because I, I saw you were playing music on your days off, so I saw you were like a part-time rock star. That's uh, another part of, uh, uh, yes, because obviously before I went in the military, I was also playing drums. Once again, that, that would have to be backtracked till I was about uh, 12 years old where uh, my parents had already uh, got me music lessons on the piano and that didn't work. And uh, what did they give me? The trumpet? That didn't work. Oh, then they got me the an accordion. Oh, yeah. So that lasted about two weeks. And then they made the mistake. They brought home one drum. Yeah, that's it. I tried them all. This is the one that makes the most racket. <laughs> so consequently, I was, I was interested in that. And my actually, my brother was playing uh, the drums first, but uh, just one drum. And he got bored with it in like a week and a half. I I took it over and I was banging away on this thing incessantly, because normally I would sit on one kitchen chair and play the other two with the drumsticks, and, you know, drive my parents, you know, crazy. So uh, and then of course out in the back of the house we had metal garbage cans in our house. So what I would do is I'd sit on one metal garbage can and play the other three. So you make a lot of racket doing that. And uh, unfortunately, the guy next door, he worked uh, uh, shift work, midnights and things like that at, uh, at Kodak, when Kodak was uh, one of the biggest employers in Rochester, New York. And uh, he'd be trying to sleep during the day, so that didn't go over real well. And uh, my father got me a marching drum, and I marched around the backyard, beat, beat that thing up, and uh, drove everyone nuts. And finally... Got to a drum set and into the basement. And I just played and played and played and still play. So, zip back to the Air Force. Uh, yes, there was a, it came up, they had this junky drum set in the in the uh, USO club, which is on, on the base. And, uh, you know, it's like three old junky drums they had left over from, you know, 30 years ago, whatever. Crack symbols, yeah. But the lady who uh, ran the USO, I started talking to her, and uh, eventually she had a new budget. And I talked her into 
and she ended up buying two brand new drum sets. Absolutely brand new Ludwig Black Pearl, Mother Pearl drum sets. Oh, they're gorgeous. New cymbals, stands the whole bit. And then I was in uh, all my free time when I wasn't uh, working was down at the USO Center in the um, one of the music rooms there just playing those drums. And I ran into another guy who was from the medical squadron. He was from Long Island. He played drums. So he heard me. He came in. We became friends. Then we started playing both drum sets. And then they had a bass talent contest. That's where they had people come up and back then. You know, so they had guys that were singer and well, Air Force women too. Uh, there were some bands that were singers, and they had a, a, a rock band. And anyway, we were in the specialty group, and what we did was two drum sets, and one of the very famous uh, drummers from the forties and. The 50s were two of them was Gene Krupa and Buddy Rich. So, and they did a, this thing called a drum battle where they would both play things and then one would play real hard and then he'd soften up and then the other guy would play. So, we put together this, uh, this uh, five minute uh, specialty thing with playing drums against each other. I'd play one, he'd play another whole drum set, and I'd play a whole drum set and back and forth and back and forth. Then we'd both play the exact same thing. To, for the ending of the, the show. So the bottom line was after the talent contest, uh, we won first place in the specialty group, which uh, got to send us to with this show to uh, uh, Frankfurt, Germany, the Rhein-Main Air Base, where the, they had everybody from all over Europe, from all the Air Force bases all over Europe, different places, and they came in. So that was going to be the... Uh, United States Air Forces in Europe talent contest. So we were in that specialty category, and we ended up uh, taking uh, first place on that. And so winning that particular thing meant that we got to take our show to all these officers' clubs all over uh, um, Europe. And uh, on Fridays and Saturday nights, they would have, uh, you know, big dance bands or whatever. And then uh, we were part of the floor show, and... Uh, we got to do that for uh, two and a half months, travel around and do nothing except drive the Air Force station wagon with our drums in it and and uh, go to the next base and uh, wait for the floor show and play the show and have fun. Yeah, so I feel music was still like a big part of your life. Yeah, I was still not only playing there, but uh, uh, there were different musicians on the base, you know, like, so I was started playing... Uh, with a with a jazz group, which piano, bass, and drums, and playing you know, jazzy type of uh, standards, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, the the thing was that uh, which I've uh, my whole life, uh, well, I I just I can't read music. That's all there is to it. There's no other way to put it. Everything that I do is uh, how I hear it and how it transforms because I know my way around a drum set. So and the different styles of music, you know, from Jazz to uh, rock and roll, uh, funk, uh, you name it. So at that particular time, I was doing, you know, the lighter stuff, jazz stuff, uh, real loud, but, you know, the standards, dance music, that kind of stuff. And that changed uh, later on after I got out of the uh, military. So I did the, I did the three years, a little over three years, three years and some odd months, in uh, France, but then Charles de Gaulle was the president, and uh, 
he didn't like what was going on uh, with uh, the North, with NATO, et cetera, et cetera. And uh, so he decided that uh, he didn't want any military people in, uh, or air, military air bases or anything in France. Uh, in 1966, he decided that. So the, the United States military had to leave the entire country. So they closed, they ended up closing all those air bases. So consequently, you have to remember back then, all those people that were working on the military installations who lived off, who were civilians, who, you know, lived in all these little villages, and et cetera, et cetera. That's where they came to work. They did everything from, you know, working in dining halls to any, think of all the jobs that are, you, you can think of in a small city. Uh, so... Consequently, uh, they were all going to be unemployed. They'd been there since since the end of the world World War Two, nineteen forty five. Bases were being built, and that's where they stayed. The bottom line is they basically shipped everybody out, with the exception of the air police. So I became part of a contingent of of uh, twelve man uh, groups, and uh, what we did is uh, we went around and. Closed Air Force bases. In other words, we'd drive, we'd stay in a in a, a French hotel and the closest to the base, and then we'd go downtown or down to the Air Force base, make sure the gates were locked, go patrol the base, which was ghost town. There's nothing left there. Vehicles all gone, just empty buildings, all the barracks, all China, uh, dining halls, everything, stores, everything, completely vacant because the French were going to take it over. Check all that, and then. Uh, Come back down to the uh, hotel and might as well have a party. And that's what we did. And now we did that until uh, we did, uh, I think, see, our group did uh, nine Air Force bases and closed those down. And then uh, the concept was, okay, here's your ticket and uh, leave France, go to Germany and uh, back to uh, Rhine Main Air Force Base and uh, Fly back to the United States. So the con- the concept back then was, if you uh, you could get an early out if you're going to go to college right away, and I still had nine months left on my uh, four year tour. So uh, or you could get put in for your base of choice, uh, which I did, and I said I want to go right back where I started from, Lackland Air Force Base, permanent party, which means. Permanent party, that's a training base. Well, when you're a permanent party, I mean, <laughs> you've got thousands of people that are for basic training, just like I, like I had done three and a half years before, except now you're permanently on the base. So everybody else does all that other stuff. You go to work. So I was on the uh, Air Force Base Police doing everything from, uh, uh, you know, traffic to taking calls at uh, all the base housing, you know, I mean, even back then, you know, people still had arguments and there was, you know, everything that a, a, a regular police officer would do, we were doing on the Air Force base. But uh, I wasn't standing next to an airplane in the middle of a snowstorm anymore. So that all came to that. And then uh, I, I finished up my nine months and they said, here's your honorable discharge. And uh, you have two years of inactive reserves and uh, have a nice time. Oh, I take that back. They brought me in... Uh, for three counseling sessions before I left. 
in the three counseling sessions, by now, Vietnam was really heated up. So we're talking late 66, going in, into 67. Now we're into 67. And uh, people are getting drafted in the United States. And uh, first place after you go in the Army, you get drafted is Southeast Asia. Which meant uh, Southeast Asia was just a nice way to say, you're going to Vietnam. And uh, that was on the news every night. And I have I have three brothers. So one was in the Air Force. He had already gotten discharged. He because he was in ahead of me. But then my younger brother, uh, Doug, he was in the United States Marine Corps. They sent him directly to Vietnam. And my younger brother, Danny, he was in the United States Army, and they sent him directly to Vietnam. And then the people who would counsel me, they said, we're going to make you staff sergeant. We're going to give you the fourth stripe. Oh, it's going to be wonderful. On and on and on. And I said, yeah. So uh, I said, where do I get stationed? They go, well, you know, we'll... You know, it's not your basic choice, but we'll, we'll send you someplace else. And then I said, where's the someplace else? Well, you might go to Southeast Asia. And I'm going, ha, ha. <laughs> so that's the deal, huh? Anyway, my brother, who has already been wounded in Vietnam, came back, fixed him up, and he went back. He found out that uh, I was up for reenlistment, and he goes, do not come here. I eventually, that's where it ended, and I got out of the United States Air Force. After the discharge, David started to rock and roll full-time. Actually, you were just listening to the recording of their live performance in 1974. They played in all sorts of venues, sharing the stage with the greatest rock stars of that time, like Aerosmith. Guess who else he had played with? Stay tuned, we'll get back to this in the next episode. Hey, thank you for listening. If you like our episodes, subscribe to Dedicated on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you're listening right now. If you want to follow us on socials, you can find us at Dedicated FM on Twitter and Instagram. If you want to contact us, our email is dedicatedfm2022 at gmail.com. I hope you enjoy.